After spending time with Nathan and Deb over the last few weeks, it is good to be back with you this morning. I am glad you're here. And I am also glad that you online are watching us this morning and participating in our worship service. I do hope that you will come back. Today we begin an eight-week sermon series on the Ten Commandments. In my research and reading this week, I discovered that Henry Sloan Coffin also did a series on the Ten Commandments in the winter of 1914 and 15. Do any of you recall that? I didn't think so. Our scripture passage today comes to us from Deuteronomy, the fifth chapter, beginning with verse number one. Listen once again to the word of God. Moses convened all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and ordinances that I am addressing to you today. You shall learn them and observe them diligently. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. Not with our ancestors did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, all who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the fire. At that time, I was standing between the Lord and you to declare to you the words of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire and did not go up the mountain. And he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. An Amish family goes to a mall for the first time. The mother goes into a department store, and the father and the son sit down on a bench. They had never seen an elevator before. A woman stands in front of a wall. The wall opens up. She walks inside. She was 95 years old. A moment later, the wall opens back up, and a 25-year-old beautiful woman walks out. And the son, very puzzled, turns to his father and says, Papa, what is that? And the father says, Boy, I don't know, but hurry up and go get your mother. <laughs> the Catholic theologian John Shea once said that God created humanity because God loves a good story, and I think that's true. We do love stories, funny stories, hilarious stories, poignant stories, sad stories, stories that leave us crying, stories that leave us laughing. Stories have a way of communicating truth to us in a way that simple discourse or discussion does not. As a matter of fact, until we can appreciate the power of story, the impact of narrative, we really will not be able to appreciate the power, the significance, and the impact of the Ten Commandments for our lives today. As we consider these commandments over the next eight weeks, keep in mind the power of story. In our Old Testament reading this morning, Moses addresses the people of Israel, the Hebrews. These are not the same people that Moses led out of Egypt. These are their children and grandchildren. The former generations have died off. They are now precariously poised on the Jordan River, ready to go into the Promised Land. It's a time of uncertainty. It's a time of fear. It's a time of hesitation. 
Moses stands before this great throng of people to talk. He says, The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain and said, I am the Lord your, your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. A story. We hear those words and we remember, oh yeah, this is the God who went down to Egypt and delivered his people. Now keep in mind that the Hebrews had been a stubborn people. They had resisted God's will. They had been disobedient time and time again in the wilderness. Uh, they complained about Moses and Aaron. Uh, they have brought us out to the wilderness to die. We miss Egypt. When Moses went up to get the Ten Commandments from God, the people became impatient. They were restless. They fashioned a calf out of gold, and they worshipped this golden calf, and they praised the calf for bringing them out of slavery, out of bondage. Uh, they were a stiff neck thankless, recalcitrant people, and yet despite their history, when Moses stands before them, as they're poised on the promised land, despite their history, God has not shamed them. God has not point fingers at them. God has not chastised them. God does not belittle them. Instead, Moses begins by recalling the story. Now remember, we were slaves down in Egypt. And God heard our cry, but God did more than that. God felt our cry, but God did more than that. God did not simply feel our pain. God did something about it. God came down to Egypt and delivered us, liberated us from bondage. It's utterly amazing. The Ten Commandments do not begin with a finger pointed in our direction. It does not begin with a set of shalls and shall nots. It begins with the telling of a story, with the retelling of the gracious, loving acts of God. Obedience, you see, is not simply a matter of adherence to a bunch of rules. Obedience has to do with listening to the story over and over again. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of a house of slavery. For many years, Terence Fretheim was a professor of Old Testament at Lutheran Northwestern Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. He was a highly regarded Old Testament scholar, and this is what he says about the introduction, the beginning of the Ten Commandments. He says, this is of extraordinary importance. It keeps the law personally oriented. Obedience is a matter of relationship to the Lord, not God in general, not adherence to the law for its, for its own sake. I am the Lord your God. This is, in effect, a promise that the Lord will be their God. Obedience is relationally conceived. In the Judeo-Christian tradition, obedience can never be focused solely on behavior, what we should do, what we shouldn't do. It is not merely sticking to the laws and regulations and codes and rules of our faith. Obedience has more to do with the direction of our lives the orientation of our spirit, the disposition of our heart. As we explore the Ten Commandments over the next eight weeks, please keep in mind that they are grounded in the gracious acts of God in history. But please keep in mind that they are grounded in the story of God reaching out to liberate his people it would also be well, do well for us to remember to whom the Ten Commandments were given. 
Now, some of you know, I grew up in the small town of 96, South Carolina. 96, that is indeed the name of the town. And it was a wonderful place to grow up. We had two whole red lights. In the summers, my brothers and I would ride our bicycles all over town. Oh, one day, I was riding by the post office, and my pants got caught between the gear and the chain of the bicycle, and I couldn't go forward, and I couldn't go backward, and I was just stuck, and I couldn't get my leg around the bike to sort of undo it, and there I was, and then, oh man, I didn't know. Uh, he pulled up, he stopped, he got out of his car, and he helped me to get unstuck. That's kind of the way it is with the Ten Commandments. We need one another. I needed him to get unstuck. We need one another to hear the story and to remain faithful, to stay on track, to live as God would have us live. Moses did not give the Ten Commandments to the world. Moses did not give the Ten Commandments to Pharaoh. Moses did not give the Ten Commandments to governments that they can post in schools or courthouses. Moses did not give the Ten Commandments to individuals that we might personally, personally live a good life. No. Western culture, with this deification of individualism, has, intent, has tended to interpret the commandments as rules for how I should live, what I should do, what I shouldn't do. And we've missed the point. The Ten Commandments are a gift based in the narrative of God's love that shapes the character of our community. The world might think of Sunday as just another day off, but we know. We know that it's important to get together, to worship God together, to praise God together, to laugh together, to cry together, to lean on one another. The world might be tempted to forsake our aging population, but we're different. We know that a sign of a just society is one that takes care of its aging members when they are no longer able to take care of themselves. The world might sacrifice truth on the altar of profit and power, but we know that when we bear false witness, we destroy trust and we will splinter our community. The world might reduce marriage to the relationship between spouses, but we have a different perspective. Those of us in the Judeo-Christian faith believe that Marriages are held together, comforted, and sustained by the love of a community of faith that cares for them. The Ten Commandments are grounded in the story of God's love, and they are given to us, not the world. They are given to us that we might have a community that is just and loving and kind and caring and compassionate. A community that's willing to stand up for the marginalized and the forgotten. A community that's willing to stand beside those who are grieving or ill or going through surgery. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before... Wait, wait a minute. 
you shall have no other gods before, before me. In his sermon on this commandment, Henry Sloan Coffin points out that we are actually polytheists. We live in a world populated by very, very many gods. Does that make sense? A god is simply our ultimate concern. That's what the theologian Paul Tillich said, your god is your ultimate concern. Martin Luther has said something very, very similar. Our God is whatever we give our absolute trust, our commitment, our allegiance. We are surrounded, we are even inundated by a multitude of gods every day that are seeking our time and our money. The atheist who says that there is no God is living in an illusion. If you want to know the atheist God, look at their checkbook. Look at their calendar. If you want to know the God of an atheist, look at the way they treat other people. If you want to know the God of an atheist, look at their priorities in life. We are surrounded by so many gods, each vying, struggling, fighting one another to get our allegiance, our loyalty, our attention, our time, our money. The gods of our world are sneaky and seductive. They promise fulfillment and happiness. They prey on our fears, uncertainties, and anxieties. They offer hope if we were but to give them our ultimate allegiance. I'm the one who can fix your problems. I'm your savior, put your faith in me. So for those who are worried about job security, they might be tempted to bow down to the gods of nationalism that demonize and denigrate immigrants. For those who are frightened by the shifting demographic patterns of our society, what some have called the browning of America, they might be attracted to the gods of white supremacy. Are you feeling alone and weak and isolated? Are you feeling very, very vulnerable and trying to make sense out of the world? Then you might be, you might want to go worship at the altar of the gods of QAnon. The gods of our world are powerful. They are frighteningly effective in their capacity to entice and enthrall. They use our deepest fears to turn us against one another, and they blind us to the humanity of those who refuse to follow them. They promise joy and happiness, safety and security, but they deliver death and destruction. Who are the gods in your life that are seeking your attention, your loyalty? Who are the gods in this world who are tugging away at your heartstrings and preying on your fears and insecurities and pain? I am the Lord your God who took you out of Egypt, who liberated you from slavery. You shall not have any other gods before me. Why? Because this God, the Lord our God, is the one whose love for us cannot be surpassed, not even by sin, not even by death. 
Ours is the Lord our God who will go anywhere, anytime, to liberate God's people, whether that be in Egypt or even on the cross. Who are the gods of this world that are tempting you? A few years ago, I read a story about a man by the name of Billy Bluefield. What a name. I love that name, Billy Bluefield. He was talking to his pastor, half laughing as he was telling the story. He'd gone to a civic club meeting, a rotary meeting, and everybody was asked to stand up, put their hand over their heart, and recite the Pledge of Allegiance. And Billy Bluefield did that. Billy Bluefield stood up, he looked at the flag, he put his hand over his heart, and he said, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. He said he got that far into the creed before he realized that he was saying the Apostles' Creed and not the Pledge of Allegiance. My friends, may we be more like the Billy Bluefields of our world.